As the threat of invasion weighed heavily on the nation of Judah, the people of God wondered what hope they had left. The words broken and shattered were used to describe their future. Hunger and distress awaited them in the night. Where would they go for relief? Who would be the source of their salvation? For the ancients, stability looked like a father. Fathers were the founders of empires, the heads of households, the ones responsible for the flourishing of their families. Those looking for security and provision were conditioned to set their eyes on their patriarch. But where does one look when earthly fathers have failed? Judah's fathers were deeply flawed. The father of humanity had fallen in a garden. The fathers of their nation had proven themselves fallible. Their prophets, priests, judges, and kings had led them astray. Fathers came and went, with the ruins of instability in their wake. And yet, here was a prophet, speaking of a child who would be born, yet who had no beginning. A son given, who would be without end. The one who would carry the government upon his shoulders. The one would be called Everlasting Father. For the people of God, this messianic title was a promise of provision. The Messiah would be a father to them. A father so wonderful, he could counsel them to righteousness. A father so mighty, he could meet their every need. As father, he would be the founder of their future the head of their household. He would assume full responsibility for their protection, their provision, their flourishing. And unlike their previous fathers, the everlasting father would not fail. This father's plans would not be bound by the constraints of time. This father's protection would not be limited by age or death. This father's presence would never decline or decay. This father's love would never grow weary or faint. Eternal provision, unending compassion, enduring hope. This everlasting father has a name. His name is Jesus. Well, hey, good morning. Merry Christmas. Um, we are in the final run, aren't we? Christmas is six days away, and I know that there's a lot of things grabbing for your time and attention right now. There's Christmas parties, there's family gatherings. Thank you for taking the time to be here this morning. Do me a favor, if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew 28. We're gonna be in Matthew 28. And, and as you're turning there, I just wanna remind you, hopefully you're setting aside time tonight to come to our family Christmas day. It's at the Grand Haven campus from three to seven. There is um, a live nativity in petting zoo. And, and just to be completely transparent, last year the camel may or may not have bitten someone in the head. Um, so give some space, you know, come at your own risk. There's no lifeguards on duty there, but that should be really fun for the kids. And uh, there's gonna be crafts and hot chocolate and tons of stuff to do. It's, it's gonna be a great day. Hope to see you there. So we are um, looking at these four names of Jesus as given to us by the prophet Isaiah. We've got wonderful counselor. That's how we kicked off the series that God is all knowing that he, he, not only does he know everything, but he perfectly has the power to effectuate his plans that he is a mighty God. My dad talked about that last weekend. And today we're gonna to talk about this idea as everlasting father. And here's what I would tell you. Um, I am convinced that out of the four names, um, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, 
For us today, the name Everlasting Father is the most important, and it's the one that you and I struggle to embrace and accept and deal with on a personal level the most. I think this one is the hardest for us to understand, accept, and embrace. And let me prove it to you. Do me a favor. I want everyone in here to close your eyes for a minute. All right, your eyes closed. All right, I see you looking at me. Close your eyes. Um, Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture God in your mind right now. Just when I say God, put that picture in your mind. All right, do you have it? All right, now open your eyes. If I do any longer, you guys are gonna doze off. I get how this goes. Um, Here's what I would bet. If you are like me, um, it's very, very common that when we think of God, to think of someone who is mighty, who is ruling, who's reigning, maybe he's in heaven and he's on a throne and he's surrounded by angels and he's powerful, but he's also really far away. It's very, very common for us to think of God as someone strong, mighty, powerful, and distant from us. And that's why the name Everlasting Father is so difficult and so important because what he's saying is this, no, 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 I am a father who is going to draw near and you and I naturally don't think of God that way. We just don't. We think of him as a powerful, all-knowing ruler, not as a near father. So here's what we're gonna do, and I'm gonna start this morning off with a big question. It's this. It's, are you allowing your everlasting father to be the thing that forms your life? Are you allowing your everlasting father to form your life? And maybe you're thinking, Cal, why do you use that word form? Like, I don't know exactly what you're talking about. That doesn't make sense. Well, here's the first thing that I wanna talk about for a minute. It's this. Um, Did you know dads have a unique power to form their children? That probably or not probably, definitely the most important relationship in your life is with your father and it is the most forming and shaping relationship in your life. I was... uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a um, mentorship program where I got kind of paired with pastors from all around the country. And one of the guys leading this program, um, he is a pastor in California. His name's Larry Osborne. He's got a massive ministry. He's, um, you probably have heard his stuff or have heard him preach, um, faithful pastor for decades. And, and he goes, um, he's talking about 12 of us. And he goes, all right, Cal, I'm going to tell you something that you would not have learned in school but it's something that's gonna be so important for your ministry. And he goes, here's what you need to know. And he goes, it's true almost as much for women too, but for men specifically, he goes, 99.9% of men carry a father wound that shapes and forms who they are. 99%, right? I could have titled this first point, daddy wounds are a real thing. And sometimes that's for obvious reasons. Maybe there was a divorce and dad blew up your family. Maybe um, dad wasn't around, he was absent. Maybe you spent a lot of your life trying to earn uh, your approval from a father who, who was very, very unwilling to give it. Maybe your dad was angry, maybe your dad was abusive, or you never knew your dad. And we're gonna talk about that a lot more in a minute, but, but what everyone would say is that when fathers fail their children, it leaves massive lifelong wounds that are real. But here's the point that Larry was making. He goes, even amazing dads create father wounds. It's unavoidable. Even dads who have amazing relationship with their kids will will wound them, inform them, and shape them that will impact their adult lives deeply. Um, Here's what I would say. If if I could talk about myself for a moment. Um, I remember 
um, when I was in late elementary school, early junior high, my dad wasn't a pastor at that time. He was a real estate developer, and he was very successful at what he did. He was good at what he did, and man, was he a hard worker. Um, when I was in fourth grade, it would not be unusual for my dad to be here one week, and then the next week he was in Chicago, then he was home a week, then he'd be back in the next week in Chicago finishing up a deal. He would travel to Japan for a couple weeks. He would travel to Hawaii. He worked really, really hard. So I get through high school, I get through college, I get married, my wife and I go start a church plant in Orlando, I'm serving there as a youth pastor, and two years into it, my dad comes down and says, hey, I'm feeling this call into ministry, I want to plant a church in Spring Lake, do you want to come be a part of it? And I'm like, yeah, sure, totally, I would love to. And here's what I would say, for the first five, six, seven, eight, nine years of the, my working with my dad at this church, for sure part of my psyche has been, I wanna show my dad that I have his same work ethic, that I can work just as hard, that I can be responsible, that I can be successful, that, that, that I can do the things that I saw him model well for me. There was for sure a, I, I don't wanna let him down, I wanna show him that I'm just as capable. I remember early on in the church, we were uh, officing out of international aid at the time. And uh, Chris and I would usually roll into the office at, at about 8.15 to 8.30. And my dad was always there before us. And that drive drove me crazy. And I'm like, my dad's not even getting paid to be a pastor. He's just doing it because he loves the Lord and loves this church. And I'm like, if I'm getting paid, I need to beat him to the office. I can't let him outwork me. So I'm like, I'm gonna show him. So, you know, the first day of the week, I get there right at 8 a.m. His car's already in the parking lot. And I'm like, all right, challenge accepted. Uh, next day, um, 7.40, I show up. His car's still there. Next day, 7.30, I show up. His car is still there. Mary's like, why are you getting up earlier and earlier? I'm like, I got daddy issues. Don't worry about it. Let me have this one. Um, next day, 7.15, He's there. On Friday, I'm like, all right, I'm going to win. I roll in to the church. It is dark outside. There is not another, or I roll up to international aid. There's not another single car parked anywhere except my dad's. And at that point, I'm like, man, this guy's got psychological issues that I can't unwind. And I just gave up. I'm like, this is not meant for me to win. I can't win. And by the way, that was hugely forming and shaping in my life. Uh, there's an incredible stat that I shared at our Vertical Men Night this fall. It said this. It said, if the child is, a, is the first Christian in a family, there's a 3 to 7% chance that the rest of the family follows. If the mom is the first, there's a 17% chance that the rest of the family follows. If the dad is the first, there's a 93% chance the rest of the family follows. Dads have almost a supernatural power to form and shape their children. In a 26-year study, researchers found that the number one factor in developing children who are compassionate towards others, both as children and adults, was a one-on-one -on -one time with their dad. Well, like, here's what I would say. Can we just think about this? You probably don't have to think very hard about your life to think about how your father, whatever your relationship is, bad, good, or indifferent, has shaped and defined both who you are and how you view God. This is something I, I don't have to convince you of. We know this intrinsically. And by the way, this terrifies me as a father. My son, Bo, right now, he is my shadow. He just wants to be me. He wants to hang out with me every day, all the time. And even just yesterday, like I was sitting with the couch, we were playing a game on our iPads together. And I just look over and he's so happy. And in my mind, all I'm thinking about is I'm going to screw you up and I'm not even sure how yet. Fathers have a unique power to form their children. So what I want to do is I want to talk about three promises our everlasting father makes. 
Here's the first promise he makes. He promises to be present. And this is what we see in Matthew 28. Look at Matthew 28, verse 18. This is the way the book of Matthew ends. This is the last thing Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends back into heaven. He says this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's interesting that Matthew ends his book by Jesus promising to be present. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And what blows my mind about that is, think about how the gospel starts. Do you remember there's a bunch of shepherds hanging out in a field and angels show up announcing the birth of the Messiah? What's the first words they say? Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy for all people. It's like you could almost bookend the entire gospel with this one sentence that you and I do not need to be afraid anymore because God has drawn near to us. God has become flesh and he will never leave us. And here's the thing, I know that this is a tension point for many in this room when it comes to the idea of God being an everlasting father. You're thinking to yourself right now, my earthly dad wasn't around, Cal. So it's great that you describe God this way, but this isn't my experience. Or maybe you're thinking to myself, no, my problem was my dad was around, but it wasn't good news of great joy for anyone. It was pain and it was terror and it was isolation and it was difficult. And you're like, it's hard for me to believe that God is drawing near, that that's a good thing because I've never experienced it and it hasn't been real with my earthly father. And what shapes your view of God is a father who's deficient or distant. And, and, And look here, here's what I love about the Bible. Do you know that God's word doesn't shy away from this reality? In fact, it knows it and embraces it and talks about it. King David, he writes this in Psalm 68. He says, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Listen, God is acknowledging that our world is broken and there are dads either who are physically have died and are gone and can't be there for us or or maybe emotionally and spiritually aren't being the dads that they should. And God says, I'm going to be the one who stands in that gap and fill that void. I will be a father to the fatherless. In fact, I think you see a pattern in scripture where God draws near to men and does amazing things through them, despite the fact that they have bad or no earthly father. I think about the story of Moses. Remember what happened to Moses when he was a baby? His mom had to ship him down a river because all of the babies were getting killed. All the Israeli babies were getting killed by the Egyptians. He grew up without a dad. He didn't know his father and he grew up in the king's court and the king viewed him as a foreigner. He he grew up without a father. And what does God say? God says, you're gonna be my voice and I'm gonna draw near to you and I'm gonna lead you and I'm going to um, be the one who works through you, does miracles through you. You're going to lead my people. You're going to be seen as the father or leader of this nation and my presence will go with you and lead you every step of the way. You will always have me. I think about David, the guy who wrote this psalm. Like David is a therapist's dream. His dad treated him so badly. Like think about this. Imagine being David, hearing that the prophet of Israel is coming to anoint someone in your family as king. 
One of your dad's sons is going to be the next king. And the dad's like, oh man, this is awesome. I'm going to gather all of my sons to, to, to be anointed, except you, David, you can hang out in the field. Like that would mess you up, right? It's like Jesse thought so little of David that he didn't even acknowledge that he was a son. He didn't bring him before the prophet. The, the prophet was like, hey, do you have like another kid? Because none of them are it. And he was like, oh, it's David, but it can't be that loser, right? And what does God do? He says, no, 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 you're gonna be my king. I choose you. You're gonna be the greatest leader this country has ever known. And guess what? The Messiah, savior of the world is gonna come to your lineage. So even though your earthly father has let you down, I will be your heavenly father. And from your line will come the Messiah. Right, I think about Jesus. Um, here's what we know in the Christmas story, Joseph, his dad is really, really present, isn't he? He's there with Mary. They go to Bethlehem together. He gets a vision from an angel, just like Mary does. And then here's what I know. By the time Jesus starts his earthly ministry 30 years later, Mary is still very present, but Joseph is gone. And what most biblical commentators believe is that Joseph died at some point in Christ's childhood. So I just want you to think about that. How amazing is it is that the one who claims to be our everlasting father knows what it's like to lose a dad. He knows what it's like to be fatherless. How perfectly equipped is he to be the father of the fatherless as someone who knows what that experience is like? And there's just something that dads and, and, and families can only do that really no one else can. Um, I remember when uh, I was living in Orlando and I found out that my wife and I were having a miscarriage and it was our first pregnancy. And Mary told me, she called me from school. And uh, she's like, Cal, the doctors called, they confirmed what we'd feared. And, and I'm like, do you want me to come pick you up? Are you okay to drive? She's like, yeah, I'm okay to drive, but let, can you meet me at home? So I um, am driving home and um, I gave my mom a call and my mom does what always happens when I call her. She doesn't answer and it goes to voicemail. My mom is world renowned for being bad at answering her phone. She's getting a little bit better, but is still in the bottom 1% of all society. Just fair warning if ever you need to call her. Um, so then I called my dad and my dad picked up and he's like, how are you doing? And I said, dad, I just feel alone right now. And he's like, you're not alone. And then and the next day, um, my dad and Mary's mom, Lori, they hopped on a plane and they just came and sat with us and hung out with us and were just present with us. And that is a picture of God, our everlasting Father. I'm here, I am present, and even if your earthly dad isn't around or has let you down, he wants to fill that void and be the thing that forms and shapes your life. All right, here's the next promise. Our everlasting Father promises to protect us. He promises to protect. Not only do we have a Father who um, is near us, but he is also all-knowing and all-powerful. We get the benefits of who God is. And, and, and church, look here. I think one of the hardest parts about being a dad is realizing how limited I am to protect my kids. Like I'm so limited to protect my kids, which is why when two weeks ago, when I hear about a school shooting in Detroit, guess where my mind goes? What if it was at my kid's school? What if those were my kids? I couldn't be there. I couldn't be present. I couldn't protect them. Like that scares me as a father. But here's what we need to know. Our heavenly father is not limited like you and I are. He's not limited by time or space. He is all-knowing and he's all-powerful and he promises to protect. That's why David, who knows what it's like not to have a father who cares about him, he can write in Psalm 23 that even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, 
he will fear no evil because God is with him. Even in the darkest moments, even in the most pain, when life is most difficult, we have a heavenly father who is protecting us. Church, I think if the last two years have taught us anything, so many things are happening in our life outside of our control. Even as I think about Christmas, so much of it is outside of our control, but there is nothing outside of the control of our protector. All right, here's the third one, and I think this one is really difficult for us to believe as well. It's this, our everlasting Father delights in you. Or maybe a better way to say it is not only does God love you, he actually really likes you too and is wild about you and wants to be close to you. I had a conversation with Mary on Tuesday and I'm like, all right, I'm preaching on this idea of everlasting father. And I said, I'm kind of struggling with where to go and what to do. And I said, Mary, when you think of God as an everlasting father, what do you think of? And she goes, oh, I think of Jesus's baptism. So, so let me read that passage for you because it's interesting. It says this, it says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Mary's like, I love that picture of God because it shows how happy he is in his son that he delights in him, that he wants to brag about him, that he is overjoyed. And that is how God views us because we are hidden with Christ. That all of the love and affection that God the Father had for God the Son, we are given in Christ. And church, here's the truth. I think too often you and I, we view our relationship with God through the lens of our sin, failure, and shame, don't we? We think of all the times we let God down. We think of all the times we fail. We think of all the times we struggle with the same sins over and over again. And here's what we think. All right, God might have to love me because Jesus died for me and I'm forgiven, but he probably doesn't really want to put up with me. He, he, he's probably disappointed. He's probably angry. And maybe he's just perpetually frustrated or, or, or dealing with me, but doesn't exactly delight in me. And here's what's crazy about that. What's crazy is, is we are giving God less credit than we do ourselves with our own kids. Because that's not how we think of our own kids at, at, at all. Like, like listen, I've got, um, right now I've got two boys and, and two girls. My, my twin girls, they're in uh, fifth grade and my boys are six and eight. And, and with my boys specifically, my entire life is correcting them right now. Hey, don't do that to your brother. Hey, think about, don't think about only yourself. Hey, stop being selfish. Hey, listen to mom. Hey, do what you're asked. Like there is constant discipline and, and correction. Like here's an example. My girls had a fifth grade basketball game in Muskegon yesterday morning and Judah, my six-year-old, decided it would be a good idea to eat 20 mints in a five-minute period. He had explosive diarrhea all afternoon. It's like, Judah, what are you thinking? Like we had to cancel small group because we thought the flu bug might be hitting our house. No, Judah just ate a lot of mints. Like, it's like, Judah, what are you thinking? Like, and Mary and I, we've developed this look that we give each other and we do it with our eyes and we do it because we can't say it because if we say it, the kids will hear it. But the look is, is, oh my gosh, my kids are driving me crazy right now. And even though that's true, like even though all of that is real, I still think my kids are awesome. I would do anything for them. I think they're amazing. I'm pumped to get out of here and go hang out with my kids this afternoon. I adore my children. And listen, if me, who is limited in kindness and grace and patience and strength, adore my kids despite the fact that they're far from the finished product, 
Why do we think that God doesn't delight and love and care for us all the more? He's a perfect father. In Romans 8, 31, Paul hits on this theme. He says this. He says, what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See what Paul's saying? He's like, do you want proof that God is for you? Just look at the manger. He gave his son so that we'd be reconciled to him. He gave us everything. And when I think of this passage, I think of Christmas. And I think of when I have my kids open their gifts. Like in that moment, I just watch their faces. And I want to see their joy and happiness and them to be pumped about the gifts they give. That is God's heart towards us. But is that how we view him? We need to actually think about God in terms of a father. Okay, I want to change gears here, and I want to talk about two things our everlasting father is not. Here's the first thing God is not. He's not a helicopter dad. God is not the kind of dad who's going to wrap his kids up in bubble wrap when they go to soccer practice because, heaven forbid, they fall down and scrape their knees. Listen, God's number one goal for your life is not to keep you from pain and suffering. God is not sitting in heaven being like, how can I make things as easy as possible for my children? It is to grow us into holiness. And that means he's going to let us walk through the valley of the shadow of death sometimes because that's a pain that we need to go through in order that we might grow in godliness and character, which is best for us. So this isn't exactly like a father-son analogy, but it's kind of close. A couple of weeks ago, I was hanging out with our youth pastor, Alec. Alec's our high school pastor. And what's interesting about that relationship is was for the first five or six years of this church's existence, that was me. Like I look around and I see um, a bunch of my high school students who are now all married and have kids and it makes me feel really, really old, but that's what I did. So, so I've gone through a lot of what, what Alec has done in leading this ministry. And Alec was frustrated when, when we were hanging out. And there was something going on in youth group that was driving him crazy. He was frustrated. He was kind of venting to me his frustrations and, and was like, Cal, what I'm dealing with right now is a pain in the butt. And uh, I said, Alec, I know you're frustrated, but I want you to know when I heard what you were going through, it made me happy. And he looked at me like, who are you? Like, why would you be happy about this? And I'm like, here's why. I'm like, because I know what it's like being where you're at. And these are one of the lessons that you can only learn through frustration that you're going to grow from this. You're going to learn what you would do differently next time. Like you are going to learn and grow and be better by going through this season of frustration. It's for your good. God is not a helicopter dad who's just keeping us from difficulty. And then here's the second one, and this one's really important. Um, our everlasting father is not mocked. He's not mocked. He is not a dad that's going to let his kids kick dirt in his face and treat him with irreverence. Do me a favor, turn in your Bibles to Galatians 6. We're gonna be in Galatians 6. And just so you know, Galatians is a church that was planted by Paul. And this church, it's dealing with a ton of false teaching and false doctrine. So Paul's writing this church because everything's screwed up and there's division, there's strife, there's infighting. And he's trying to reset for them what are the most important things. And here's what he writes in Galatians 6, 7. He says this, he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. 
And then just so you guys know, Galatians 6, 9 is my life verse. It says this, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have every opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. But you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, listen, God isn't mocked. And if you sow to sin, you're going to reap corruption. And here's what I want you to see, church. He's not writing this to unbelievers. He's not saying, hey, you better repent of your sin or you're going to be uh, um, receiving God's wrath. He's writing this to Christians. He's saying, even though that you are adopted as children, even though that God loves you and delights in you and adores you, he is not mocked. And if you choose to run to unrepentant sin, it's going to produce negative consequences in your life and it's going to hurt your relationship with God. Well, church, we need to understand, when you think of sin, I want you to think of one word. I want you to think of separator. Sin is a separator. And here's what I mean. It separates relationships horizontally. Like Ty, if you lie to your wife, Riss, that's gonna cause separation in the relationship, right? Trust is broken. A lot of the intimacy and trust is gone. It's gonna have to be built back and restored over time. Sin separates us relationally from one another. And even though God is still our father and delights in us and loves us, our unrepentant sin relationally and experientially will separate us from those benefits of being his children with God. And I know this is true because I lived in a house with a father. Like, listen, I had a great dad and my dad loved me a lot, but here's the thing. When I was in middle school and in high school and I was acting like an idiot, my dad wasn't cool with it, right? Like I wouldn't break curfew, do whatever I want and then come home and throw my arm around my dad and be like, what's up, bro? No, I'd get my head handed to me and I'd get disciplined and I'd be like walking on eggshells for a couple days because I knew I got mom and dad mad. And by the way, that was my fault. It was my choice because I was rebelling against their authority. And listen, we pastors at this church talk to people all the time who are choosing to live in unrepentant sin. And the conversation, it's like Groundhog's Day. It happens over and over again. It's like, man, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And he just seems so distant. I don't know what I believe. And I'm like, yeah, the reason you feel like that, it's not because God has gone anywhere. You're running. Perfect example of this, I think, is the story Jesus tells about the prodigal son. Right? It's a story that Jesus tells. It's a picture of how loving God is towards us and how he views us as a father. And don't miss the part of the story, though, that when the prodigal son wants to go, the father lets him. The father doesn't chase him. Now, does he still adore his son? Yes. Is he still waiting for the moment he comes home? Absolutely. Does he throw his arm around him and celebrate him and restore the relationship? Yes. But the father let the son go. And church, by the way, this is why we always talk about having a soft, humble heart and owning your sin and confessing and asking for forgiveness because it heals the relationships both horizontally and vertically. Like it never ceases to amaze me how people who claim they believe that they are sinners saved by grace, when it comes to their own issues, refuse to acknowledge that they're sinners saved by grace. We get defensive, we blame shift, we make excuses. So here's um, what I wanna do right now as we close. I'm gonna call this an Advent takeaway. I just wanna close with this one thought, and it's this. It's that how you view your everlasting father will define your perception of Christianity. I do believe that everything is on the line 
in regards to whether or not we view God as a father or we don't. I found this amazing quote this week as I was studying. It said this. It says, the thing that makes Christianity different from Judaism, the thing that makes the New Testament new and better is the reality that God is our father who draws near. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and almighty, but if he is separate from us and if he is not our father, how is that any different than Greek mythology? The Greeks had tons of gods and they ruled and they reigned and they were powerful, but they were not kind to humanity. They didn't really want anything to do with mankind. Hinduism, there's millions of God and they have power and they're mighty, but they are not near to humanity. The thing that makes Christianity unique, the reason it's not a religion, but it's a relationship, we've heard that terminology a lot, is because God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. There is a nearness in the relationship that is not replicated anywhere else in human history. Like, I believe this so strongly, I would say if you don't view God as a father who delights in you, you still don't fully understand the amazing power of the gospel. So let me close by asking you this question. Where are you at when you come here this morning? Like when I asked you to close your eyes and picture God, what did you picture? I think that should be telling us something about our perception of God. And I think of the story of, again, of the prodigal son. We see the son in kind of three different scenes in that story. The first is, is that the son is around. He's with his dad. He's doing the right things, but his heart isn't there. He doesn't want to be around his dad. He wants to do his own thing. He's grinding against the authority of his father. And he's like, just let me go. Give me my inheritance. I want out. Is that you as you enter Christmas? On the outside, things look okay. You're doing all the right things, but your heart is somewhere very, very far away. Another scene we see is um, when the son runs and he's having parties, he's doing whatever he wants. No one's gonna tell him what to do, but he is on a road that's leading to destruction quickly. I don't want anything to do with my dad. I'm going to do it myself. Is that you? And then the third scene, which I think is so beautiful is you have a son who comes to the end of himself. And he's like, dude, I don't care about tomorrow. I don't care about what role I have in the family. I don't care about what my job is. I don't care about my living situation. I don't care. I don't know what's gonna happen next and I can't control any of it. I just want to get home and see my dad. I miss him and I'm lost and I've made a horrible mistake and I want to come to my father because I know he will love me and forgive me. That's where I want us to live this Christmas. That's what Advent is all about, preparing our heart for the reality that God is a father who draws near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for just a kind, sweet message that you are not distant, but that you're near, that you love us, that you want to be the thing in our life who forms us and shapes us. God, we need to hear that today. Help us believe it. Help us not to view you through the lens of our sin and failure. Help us to believe what you've said to be true. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.